This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black on Federal News Network. One-on-one interviews with the people who've left a lasting imprint on the government and the nation. Now your host, Aileen Black. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Bill Kroll. Bill Kroll is a partner and independent consultant specializing in information technology, security, and intelligence systems. Bill has held several C-suite positions over the last decade and had led companies through several acquisitions to include Broadware, ArcSight, Silink, just to name a few. Prior to that, Mr. Kroll was at the National Security Agency, and in 1994, President Clinton as, uh, appointed him as Deputy Director of NSA and served in that post until his retirement in 1997. Mr. Kroll is an expert on network and information security issues, and but there's just way too much to cover what he's an expert in. He's just wow. So first off, it is a pleasure and an honor, sir, to have you on Leaders and Legends. Can I call you Bill? Uh, please, please do. Okay. Bill, I, I, I'd like for you to just start off with, you know, you've done so many things and you accomplished so many things in your career. Can you describe your leadership style? Uh, well, first of all, I always try to make sure that people understand that management is not leadership. Leadership is something that you put in front of the management process in order to set the vision for the organization and to engage people in the strategy and tactics that will get you there. And so I spend a lot of my time when I'm in a leadership position, uh, getting to know exactly what we're trying to accomplish and who in the organization is most able to help set the uh, agenda for getting us there and engage with them and uh, and let them participate in the leadership uh, as we go forward. You have been a successful leader, both in private sector and um, public sector. Um, is there a difference in the type of leadership skills that you need in the government versus private sector? Um, at the highest level, probably not. But in, in terms of the day-to-day -day activities of leaders in government, uh, they do have some additional challenges. Uh, the challenge uh, uh, that relates to uh, rewards and punishments in particular, uh, it is very difficult for um, most organizations to give leaders uh, the complete power that you enjoy when you're in private sector uh, to uh, promote people, to reward people, uh, and so on. But there are many reward mechanisms in government and you have to use all the ones that, uh, that exist. Um, I think that again, it's, it, it all comes back to my earlier statement that it's all about engaging with the people and making sure they share your vision and they share your desire to make the organization successful. You know, and you, you've been successful in, in a much different dynamic in startups and, and bringing companies public. And, and you know, today's environment um, is pretty tough on startups. Um, you know, there's a lot of money on the sidelines. Is there a specific skill set 
as you're going through that process at a company, as, you, as you're starting to, you know, take that turn in the road and become a public company? Well, I think that the most important thing for a startup is to survive and you can't survive if you're not lean and mean. Uh, particularly today, getting money from venture capitalists or from private equity firms is uh, very difficult. It's more difficult than it was even a year ago. Uh, and so uh, in order to survive, you have to be able to uh, meter your resources uh, to take advantage of the money you have, but don't spend it all. Uh, and, and don't think that there's more money coming just around the corner. Uh, and unless you're enjoying success, and success, by the way, means making money and, in, and engaging customers, um, you're going to you're going to burn all of the money that you were able to raise. So watching the burn, um, making sure that uh, the organization doesn't uh, add resources that uh, it can um, delay and, and wait to add. Uh, and and then uh, probably the most important thing is engaging with the customers continuously so that you are always satisfying their needs because in the private industry, uh, if you're not satisfying their needs, you're not going to make money. Uh, you're you're going to have to have a product or a service uh, that the customers want and that they uh, that they actively uh, engage with you to get. You've had such an interesting career. Tell me about an accomplishment where you were a leader and you're very proud of it and it really kind of shaped who you are. Well, probably the most difficult time that I had at the National Security Agency, um, but the one that I felt the greatest amount of pleasure about was uh, the transformation of NSA from an analog organization that is a radio intercept organization to a digital organization. Uh, that transformation had to happen very quickly. I was at the time the deputy director for operations and we literally trained uh, tens of thousands of people in digital technology uh, and how to exist in the new uh, digital world of the internet. Uh, it, was, it was quite a, a large transformation. It was extremely successful and it involved uh, at one time, the displacement of about 17,000 military pe people from overseas bases back into the United States, where we set up regional centers and gave them a larger chunk of the mission. It, it was a challenge, but it was very, very satisfying. And it continues to exist today as a fundamental part of the organization. Uh, I'm going to kind of take a step uh, in a different direction here about transformation. Um, what do you think the challenges are for leaders today, in particular at NSA, with the advent of artificial intelligence and, you know, models, large language models like ChatGT? I mean, that's got to change, have a, as big of an impact on a transformation as maybe you led back then. Well, it has some, it has some possibility of bringing about 
uh, more efficiency and, and some very good changes. Uh, but I think what you're seeing play out today in the press, because AI is certainly in the press every single day, um, is that we have lived during the past uh, four decades uh, in a world in which uh, the advance of technology and the advance of our laws and rules and structures have not kept pace with each other. Technology is uh, outpacing our ability to construct rules and laws that will govern that technology. And there are a number of examples of that. AI is one of them, but there are also all of the rules that govern uh, how NSA operates and what it can intercept and how it can do its analysis. And the same thing goes for the entire intelligence community. Uh, they're all involved with technology and uh, the laws that govern how they operate with that technology are quite frankly antiquated. I mean, one of the things I found out just a, a couple of weeks ago is that a, a fair number of intellectual property cases that are decided in this country involve um, a, a law that was drafted and passed in 1791 it was drafted by uh, Jefferson and, and uh, Madison. And we still haven't changed that law. That is fundamentally one of the laws that is used to either validate or, or invalidate uh, intellectual property patents today. Well, that's alarming. <laughs> what do you think our, our leaders uh, in in uh, that are on Capitol Hill or our leaders in this community can do to um, effectively address that gap? Well, we are electing more um, more people, more representatives who have technical backgrounds. Uh, that helps, but you know they're not in the majority. I I don't believe yet. Um, even if they were in the majority, I think uh, constructing the laws that uh, govern how technology is used in, in government and particularly how it's used in the intelligence and law enforcement areas uh, is quite difficult. It's not, it's not straightforward. And so um, it's, it's very challenging. And I think the leadership of the uh, law enforcement and intelligence communities um, and for that matter, Homeland Security, look at what's going on at the border. Um, they, they're going to have to work very closely together to construct the laws that will help us use technology instead of being afraid of. I'm speaking with Bill Kroll. After the break, we'll discuss leading and innovation in the federal government today. You're listening to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Bill Kroll, former Deputy Director of NSA, board member and partner at Alsop Louis Partners. So, Bill, let's talk about your career at NSA. Why did you choose NSA and, uh, you know, in that particular mission at that great agency? It's, uh, it's an interesting and fascinating story. I actually, um, well, it starts this way. NSA, at the time I was in uh, the university, uh, 
was administering a test to people uh, who were in the liberal arts, language, and, uh, and analysis areas of study. Uh, I took that test. Uh, it was absolutely a fascinating test. It, it uh, had sections on artificial language where you had to learn a language and translate the language and, and uh, work problems in that artificial language. Uh, it had problems, uh, it had a section on, on uh, artificial mathematics where uh, not all of the numbers were there and you had to, uh, you had to figure out uh, the numbers that had question marks representing them uh, and what they were. Uh, based upon the structure of the math problem that was presented to you. And a lot of other uh, fascinating uh, problems that were put in front of me. And I thought, uh, you know, anybody who could construct this test <laughs> must be a really fascinating place uh, to work. And uh, so I ended up accepting their offer. Um, and I found that it was a good fit for me. I uh, there were several things about it that made it a good fit for me. One was that uh, it had a lot of technology and I was in love with technology at the time and still am. Um, the second thing is it had some really fascinating people. Um, some of the best uh, mathematicians in the world, uh, some linguists that were truly outstanding, uh, engineers and physicists and, and uh, uh, computer scientists who were solving very, very interesting problems. And so, and, and finally, the, the last thing that made it very fascinating for me is that you had a lot of mobility. You could change jobs and do new things on a regular basis at NSA. And I, I think I ended up having uh, a job in almost every single area of the agency. Uh, so it was, it was a fascinating opportunity and People ask me, uh, what makes people stay at NSA? And I always give them the same answer. A fascinating and important mission, uh, fascinating and really smart people, uh, and uh, some of the best technology and toys that uh, you could ever hope for. So you were there quite a while and you held many roles. What success are you most proud of while you were at National Security Agency? Well, I think the thing I told you about earlier, which was the digital transformation of the organization uh, during the early 90s. Um, I became the DDO in, I think, 1991. And uh, uh, that was a time of, it was right after the, uh, first Iraqi war, um, and it was during the time the internet was beginning to uh, become a commercial entity instead of just a government entity, uh, and was expanding into the commercial world very, very rapidly, and also being used by nations around the world for their communications. So uh, it, was a, it, it was a challenging time and, and one that I think uh, uh, was successful in terms of the transformation. One of the biggest, uh, uh, you know, obstacles in adoption of new technology is usually culture. Um, 
any advice on addressing cultural change, especially as it resolves around technology and innovation and adoption? I mean, you talked about how 17,000 um, employees or military uh, staff got displaced and, and then had to learn new skill set. You know, do, right now, you know, there's so much technology adoption that has to be done. Um, the clock speed of innovation in the, in particular, the federal government has to be, as you mentioned before, the innovation of technology is outpacing our laws, outpacing what we have. What advice would you have about how to address, you know, this challenge over the next decade to our leaders out there? Hire as many people as you can who never want to stop learning. That's really the key because it's, it's self-sustaining. If you have large numbers of people who are always learning, uh, it will, it will catalyze the entire culture of that organization. And, uh, quite frankly, uh, I think that's one of the reasons I'm so attracted to startups is that, um, uh, uh, in the early stages of a startup, all of the people associated with the organization or with the company are part of its founding, and they're all wanting to learn. I, I give an example of, of customer focus. My first uh, really big board seat, it wasn't my first board seat, but my first really big board seat was ArcSight. And uh, I joined ArcSight when it was only uh, about 30 people. And I was stunned to find out that ArcSight interviewed potential customers for six months before they wrote a line of code. Now, that's, that's the kind of, of uh, talent you know, that is focused on success. And I think that's why I love startups because uh, you don't hire anybody who isn't focused on the success of the company. You have in your current role, the ability to really see the hottest areas of technology today. In the next several years, um, what do you believe will be the hottest technologies out there? And I'm gonna ask you um, on a segue a little bit, how do you think the intelligence community can really leverage it in their mission? Uh, well, the hottest ones are the ones I'm involved with. <laughs> uh, so cybersecurity, um, it's hot because it's such a big problem and it requires uh, real ingenuity. Uh, it's a never ending problem. I don't think there is a silver bullet out there yet that will solve the cybersecurity problem. Um, but there are several that are beginning to blossom that uh, hold some promise to make the situation better. Uh, not completely solve it, but make it better. Uh, the second one is uh, artificial intelligence. I'm involved with a couple of artificial intelligence companies. Uh, most of them focused on uh, open source intelligence um, and uh, using AI to uh, essentially plow through tens of thousands of uh, sources of information 
uh, and put it all together into a single analytic uh, platform uh, that people can consume more easily than by doing searches on the internet. Um, a third one is quantum science. Uh, I'm on the board of a company that is building a room temperature optical uh, qubit, uh, which is useful in their in their terms, useful for doing uh, quantum num uh, quantum random number generation. And it's amazing how we use random numbers in so many places. Uh, you know, in in my world, we use them for encryption, but uh, in in public areas, we use it, for example, for state lotteries and for a lot of other things that require random numbers. Uh, so those are three of the really mainstream movements in today's technology that uh, I try to track. Uh, the fourth one, by the way, is, uh, is really growing out of the gaming industry and its artificial reality, uh, augmented reality, I should say, augmented reality and virtual reality. Um, and those are both going to be very, very important to the next stage of industrialization um, and being able to build factories with robots that uh, uh, can build very intricate things. So you, you, you had a great point earlier that, you know, you, to stay on top of this, you need to have that thirst for learning. How would somebody out there, do you think, who doesn't have the position to be able to have the exposure to this uh, technology directly through your current position. How how would you recommend they stay on top of this so they, they can continue to lead their organization? Well, um, I, I have a saying that I borrowed from a friend of mine um, who came out of the intelligence community. And that saying is in today's world, there is no excuse for not knowing anything you want to know. We have the internet. And the internet has a lot of misinformation and disinformation in it, but it also has a lot of very solid sound uh, information content. I mean, if I want to learn how to build neural networks or artificial intelligence, I can go on the Google uh, site and take a course in uh, uh, software programming of neural networks. Um, if I want to know about uh, any company and, and what products it's marketing and to who, I go on their websites. Uh, I, we, have a, we have the equivalent of, uh, of 100,000 uh, libraries that are beck and call on the internet, and I use it every single day. I'm speaking with Bill Kroll, former deputy director of NSA, board member and partner at Alsop Louis Partners. After break, we'll discuss being a leader in building a career path in technology. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking to William Kroll, former deputy director of NSA, board member and partner of Alsop Louis Partners. You know, Mr. Kroll, you have a very unique 
uh, background of not only be successful in public sector, but also being a founder of tech companies that we talked earlier. How does leadership influence culture? We talked about culture, you know, and, and, and trying to change it to adopt technology, but how do you think a leader can influence the culture at a company? And is it important for a leader of a startup to build a culture that works for startups versus other environments? Uh, well, in your on the last part of your question, it's absolutely essential for uh, the the leadership of a startup to uh, uh, to engage people uh, at in the uh, in the whole process of uh, learning and of of building a company. Uh, and by the way, that isn't done by one person. Uh, it's not, you know, you're, you're people point to certain leaders um, in the world today or in the world of yesterday and, and say, well, they did it. Well, no, uh, they helped a culture uh, be built that got it done. And so whether it's a Steve Jobs or a, uh, or president of the of the uh, of the uh, United States, or the uh, leader of a technical organization in government, uh, it it is the job of the leader to organize the culture uh, around the mission and to get that mission done. Um, and I believe that if you can't walk around the organization and ask people the simple question, what is our mission and how do we intend to get it done and get some answers, some hardcore answers, then your organization's gonna fail. Uh, you should be able to ask anybody in the organization what the mission is, and you should be able to ask them what is their role in accomplishing that mission and get a solid answer. And if you don't, then it means you haven't built the culture of success. Can you describe your career path? I mean, and, and it has it has your focus and time horizon changed as you took more senior positions? Um, well, I have the most eclectic career path, I think, in, uh, uh, in history. Uh, I actually began uh, at NSA thinking I was going to be a computer scientist. And I got shanghaied by the personnel organization, and I became a recruiter of computer scientists, uh, physicists, engineers, and mathematicians, mostly at the graduate level. And that was because I already was a technically oriented person. I'd worked my way through uh, college uh, as a uh, uh, as an engineering associate uh, in a, a couple of engineering companies. Uh, and had done uh, some pretty unusual and, and uh, successful uh, original work in mathematics and in engineering, uh, building models and, and uh, making them easily understood by the masses. Um, so I had to, I had to, uh, to uh, navigate from being a recruiter in personnel uh, to being deputy director of the agency. And it was a very interesting path because at one time I ran a research and development organization. I ran all of the science and technology 
uh, organizations. Um, I ran analysis on some of the major um, portions of the world. Um, and I ran all operations worldwide and then was deputy director as my final job. So, uh, wow, what a, what a interesting career path for learning because I was always learning. I was always in a new job. Um, and by the way, at one point I left NSA and went to the aerospace industry where I was involved in uh, the design of, uh, of satellites. So uh, I even had some experience outside the agency and went back to the agency uh, after uh, gaining some uh, industrial uh, experience. Uh, so I had a diversified career within government and 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 just by leaving outside government for a short period of time. Um, I think that uh, that's not everyone's cup of tea. Not everyone would want to be that diverse, but I did and it paid off for me. To be able to make those huge changes from personnel to leading uh, science and technology organizations, most people would find that daunting. And they would have, um, you know, maybe personal challenges to have that confidence to move forward. Did you experience any of that? And and how did you plow through it um, to be able to make these changes and continue to grow at, at that big of a, a, of a gap in a level as you change through your career? Uh, well, I guess you could say I was quite adaptable and um, and I certainly didn't mind learning new things. I think the most startling uh, challenge I ever had, um, because it was so different, is that uh, when I retired from the agency and I joined Silent Corporation, uh, I was the vice president of, of uh, product. And um, after being there for a very short period of time, the board called me in and uh, said, uh, would you consider being CEO of this public company? <laughs> and after asking the obvious question, which is what happened to the last one, <laughs> I, uh, I, I took that job and the next day was explaining to Wall Street analysts uh, what had happened and why I was now the CEO. And, and um, why we were taking, making major changes in the company and how that shouldn't affect the stock price. That was a, that was a shocking transition <laughs> to say the very least. Somehow or other, I managed to get through it and I stayed in that company as CEO for five years. So it worked out. Sounds rather fearless, sir. <laughs> <laughs> When it comes to leaders of startups or technology companies in general, you know, you talked about post-IPO and talking in front of Wall Street, but I think one of the biggest challenges is in startup leaders is they begin to fall in love with their company and, and they have a hard time with the, the decision of how and when to exit to become, you know, to IPO or, or for acquisition. Tell us about this important time for a leader at a startup and, and it's, you know, you've led in the past and, and, and how did you do that? 
Well, one of the things that I've noted uh, throughout the years that I've been in uh, either on boards or at uh, my partner in venture capital is that uh, an awful lot of founders are really, really exciting creators of technology, but they aren't necessarily going to be able to lead the company through all of the stages of development. And so an, an early decision that has to be made by the investors and also by the founders is whether or not they should stay in leadership positions in the company or whether they should, uh, let's say, graduate to be chairman of the board or to be CTO instead of CEO. Um, and to the extent that you're able to get founders to either transition and become good CEOs or to recognize that they really are more in love with the technology rather than running a company, uh, then that pivot and that trans transition determines whether or not a startup will cross the chasm and become successful and either IPO or be acquired. Um, in the case of ArcSight, as an example, it was five years from the time I joined the board till they IPO and uh, two more years before they had a, uh, an, an extremely uh, lucrative exit uh, with the acquisition by HP. Uh, that was a very successful company, but I would point out that uh, the leadership changed several times um, and uh, every time it changed the company had another spurt of growth uh, and became more successful at that next level. I'm speaking with William Prohl, former deputy director, NSA board member and partner at Alsop Louis Partners. After break, Bill will share his advice for the next generation of leaders. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm talking today with Bill Kroll, former deputy director of NSA, board member and partner at Alsop Louis Partners. There has been so many articles today, Bill, about empathetic leadership. What are your thoughts on that? And what are your thoughts about needing that? I, I think probably the most important advice I'd give to startups um, is don't be a me too company. If you're not bringing something new to the market, um, then maybe you ought to sit down and re-examine what you're trying to bring to the market and why. Um, and what do I mean by a Me Too company? Uh, I'll give you an example. The cybersecurity industry, um, when they have the RSA conference in the spring, uh, has as many as 3,000 companies in cybersecurity uh, appear either on the floor, about a thousand who appear on the floor, uh, and then another 2,000 who just show up and they either want to learn about uh, their competitors or they want to be able to meet with a lot of their potential partners. Um, 
if they're a me too company, and by the way, if there are 3000 companies in cybersecurity, I guarantee you, um, at least two thirds of them are me too companies, at least two thirds, maybe more. Um, and so you really have to start at the beginning. You have to talk to customers. You have to understand what, what is keeping customers up at night. And you have to be able to uh, then address those needs. And so uh, maybe you address the same need as another company, but you do it in a different way, or you do it in a way in which it's easier for the customer to execute, or you do it in a way that educates the customer uh, to be better at cybersecurity. Uh, if you're me too, then customers are going to recognize it right away. And then the only advantage you might have is price. Um, and that's not going to win in the marketplace uh, unless you are providing the same level of, of uh, service or product uh, at the same price or a better price. So um, that's that's the biggest thing I would say. I, I'm just seeing so much. I mean, look at the hype surrounding AI right now, artificial intelligence. Um, there, are every, there are so many companies that have become company X dot AI that it's, it's just incredible. The number of companies that mention in their marketing material that they use AI to uh, make their product better is growing by leaps and bounds. My guess is that most of those use some form of machine learning, a very rudimentary models, uh, and and they they probably don't have any differentiator uh, in the AI or machine learning uh, world. They just are using it as a marketing tool. So um, I have a I have a personal saying. It's actually um, it's it's not trademark, but it should be. Uh, I've been using it for 20 years and it still serves me well. I refer to the cybersecurity industry as a thousand points of light and no illumination. Essentially, it's like a LED flashlight with a thousand LEDs all pointed in different directions. And we have to solve that problem before we'll ever solve the cybersecurity. So you, you bring up a, another subject. I'm going to um, kind of segue to this. Um, you know, today, historically, the U.S. has always been the lead in innovation and technology. Recently, we've read so many articles about China surpassing or, or at least being in equal footing with U.S. and technology. What are your thoughts of this, and and how can we keep the U.S. and competitive, how can we solve that, that challenge of a thousand points of light actually illuminating, you know, the challenges that we face today and tomorrow? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I am concerned about the China threat, um, in terms of uh, uh, technology leadership in the world. Um, and I'll address that in a second, but I'm also concerned about them um, 
taking away from the United States, our leadership and being the reserve currency of the world and their current efforts to make the yuan uh, the reserve customer, uh, uh, reserve currency in the world. Uh, they're conspiring along with the Russians and the Brazilians and the uh, Saudis and, and others to uh, make that switch and to start making transactions and on. But I will point out that uh, there was a point in the late 70s and early 80s when we were saying that the world of technology would be led in the future completely and solely by the Japanese. Um, and that didn't happen. And it didn't happen for a lot of complex reasons that have to do with aging populations, uh, leadership styles, um, the uh, form of government, uh, et cetera. All of those same things leadership style, form of government, and aging populations could also apply to China. And uh, as long as we remain a viable um, country that it welcomes immigrants uh, and is uh, built on innovation and uh, development of new technologies, uh, and that we don't pass laws that change that, uh, I think we have a chance of staying ahead of the Chinese. So Bill, at the start of the, the show, I, I mentioned that we would get your advice for the next generation. What would you like to have known when you were 21 and just starting out? What pearls of the wisdom would you have given Bill today as he graduated from college? Well, um, Eileen, I, there's something about my background that I haven't revealed, and that is by the time I was 21, I had uh, a pretty strong background already. I had been the president of an international organization at age 16. I traveled internationally and met with uh, heads of governments in Germany and France and and the UK and uh, had given speeches all around the world at led panels in the Sorbonne. Um, so by the time I was 21, I pretty much knew what I wanted to do <laughs> and, uh, and a little bit about how to get there and how to do it. Um, but I, I will go back to the things I said in the very early part of this. Um, always be involved with your organization and its people, walk around, get to know people, get to know their part of the mission, get to know how they make you successful or don't, and, uh, and, and be, be a part of the workforce. Don't be outside the workforce as some kind of um, separate entity. Leaders are not separate entities. They are they are just fortunate enough to have the role of leading uh, the rest of the workforce. You've been listening to Leaders and Legend in Government. My guest today has been Bill Kroll. Bill, I want to thank you to your uh, sacrifice and uh, your dedication to the nation. And I also want to thank you for joining us today 
and sharing your personal journey and some seriously valuable advice. Well, thank you very much, Eileen. It's, uh, it's been a genuine pleasure. Thank you. I'm Eileen Black. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black. Subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. Thank you.